UK Motor Talk. Hello everyone, it's 2023. How are you? Hooray! Happy New Year. Well, just carrying on where we left off 2022, really. But uh, yeah, same uh, same what's it, different year, but still here, which is the main thing. Happy yeah, New Year to you all. Off. Yes, and I'm Mike, you. this is... Oh, well, hello. Uh, I'm Sorry. Mike, this is UK Motor Talk, and I'm here with... Jim. Hi. <laughs> Shall we start this right. from the top? Oh, right, let's start from the top again. Ready? We get. Here we yeah, go. Yeah, start again. Okay. UK Motor Talk. Well, hi everyone. This is. UK Motor Talk, and this is 2023. I'm Mike. Hello. I'm Jim. Good evening. I'm Graham. Happy New Year to you all. And I'm Dave. And how the hell is it 2023? It was 2022 last time I looked. Are we all doing all right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, 2022 went a bit quick, didn't it, really? But it's, uh, well, the last couple of years seem to have gone quickly. But glad to see the back of 2022. But I think 2023 has just kind of carried on the same, really, hasn't it? The outside world is doom and gloom. So, uh, I don't know. Let's try and be positive. The, uh, I would say the motoring world is full of positivity at the moment, but some of it is, some of it isn't. Maybe kind of half and half. So let's. Uh, I don't know. Should we, should we try and focus on the positives? Well, I, I have a bittersweet uh, story. I think to start us off with, if I may. Go on. Now, London, as you know, surrounded by the M25, which is just rubbish, frankly, unless it happens to be empty, which it never is. Inside London. There is the ULEZ zone, and they're going to expand it, so it's basically all of the inside of the of the M25. This is a problem, if you like, your retro cars and, and various different classics, uh, or diesels, I suppose, if that's your bent, um, because a lot of them are no longer eligible to be inside the low-emission zone, unless you want to spend whatever it is per day, like 15-odd quid or something similar. That's a problem, and it's also killed the London to Brighton mini-run uh, this year, they think it's going to be the very last one because it's not possible to go from London anymore. So before it was Crystal Palace, they don't want us there anymore. Um, it was Cheam Park this year, which was conveniently on my brother's back garden near enough. So I could just stay there and then and then drive down. Um, but this year, they think it's probably going to be the last time because the cars aren't compliant. Although, bizarrely, despite the fact I pay something like 370 quid a year road tax for my Mini, it is apparently green enough to be ULES compliant, so I don't really understand that. But nevertheless, that is that is a, a huge shame. Obviously, if you live in London, I suppose you'll benefit from better air quality. That's a good thing. Um, <laughs> but where the rest of us benefit, I've noticed, is that a few gems are surfacing out of the, the woodwork. Because if you have to spend 15-odd quid to take your car out of the garage every day, you just don't. So a lot of people are saying, well, let's just sell it then. Now, a car popped up the other day, which... I think is um, it was a little gem that a Ford Puma. Now the original Puma, this is the coupe as opposed to the the SUV, which isn't a bad SUV, but is in the front of the name Puma. I don't know. It was immaculate. The guy spent five grand on it, doing it up. The underside had all been welded and painted, and everything had been changed or replaced with new bolts, new fixes, new bushes, uh, and it looked, for my money, terrific. And I can't really think of a, a finer handling front-wheel drive coupe little 1.7 engine fizzy yamaha engine which was famously built and then 
tinkered with by Yamaha and then sent back and fitted and, and an exhaust system, an intake system, which was designed just for noise. A car that was designed just to drive and genuinely a brilliant little car. I'll get to the point. Yours for two and a half grand. Yeah, when you'd uh, when you shared it, it seemed very, very cheap for the amount of very. care and love and attention that had clearly gone into it. I mean, it was one of those cars that, uh, you know, whenever you're buying a, a second-hand car, you're worried about, you know, the engine, the gearbox, the electricals, etc. But almost with this car, it, it almost didn't matter. If the engine blew up within three minutes of picking it up, you almost wouldn't worry because yeah, the rest of the car seemed that such good value for the effort that had gone into it. And it's not just the Puma. There are... Old Mercs and old BMWs. I saw a 750, uh, as in the you know, the James Bond shape 750. I was, there's been a huge amount of V8s and such that just seem to to no longer be viable if you live in the, the suburbs of London. So are we outside of London all going to be driving classic cars? I, I mean, I could handle the Puma. I remember driving that in in period, and it was great fun. Yeah, and particularly the it was the the one that Aston Martin got at. Help me out here. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, the oh, racing Tickford. puma. The the Tickford yeah. one. Tickford, yeah. Yeah, that was that was great fun. I remember doing several laps of one roundabout in um, in Chichester on a test drive just because it handled so well. It just couldn't stop going round. It was just great fun. Yeah, a bit of a wasted opportunity that was, I think, because it was designed um wider and uh and able to basically take the running gear from the escort Cosworth. So the idea was that it could be a rally car with Cosworth underpinnings and it would be hugely competitive and it never got that engine which seems like a massive shame so it ended up with a mildly tweaked version of the 1.7 James and I uh, know one of the chaps or met one of the chaps should I say really he taught us for a while who was on the engineering team that designed the racing Puma and he was saying that around the Dunton test track if they put a, a, a driver in a normal Puma and a racing Puma it was very hard to get away because it just didn't have that much power the handling was so much more improved and the chassis, which yeah. is brilliant anyway, could ha- could have handled more. So uh, you know, maybe with with a Cosworth engine in there and and probably about three hundred brake horsepower, that would have been a, a whole different an ball incredible game, car. Definitely. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I seem to remember commenting at the time that the performance figures, the on road performance figures, were pretty much the same. Uh, there was virtually nothing between them. But but it was just great great fun to drive. I didn't have the opportunity to put it on a track to really test the handling of it. But I mean, just um, Going slightly hooligan in it was was good fun. It would be an interesting project for someone, wouldn't it? If if indeed someone hasn't already done it, to actually bolt in the running gear as as intended, and then then see what it's like. Because uh, I'd certainly pay to watch that video. Indeed, I would I would pay to actually sit in the car. I think that'd be very interesting and a fitting tribute to the uh, the people who intended it to be so equipped. Mm. Oh, um, they are they're they're worth a pretty penny those now. I remember. I very nearly swapped at a Mondeo ST years ago, and I very nearly swapped that for one. I think they were about seven odd grand back then. Um, they're, they're effectively, a, a normal Puma with the with the extended arches welded on the outside, uh, and still like to rust very much like the, uh, the the Puma that it's based on. But an incredible car, I think, incredibly pretty as well. Um, it, it shares uh, lots of design elements with um, Aston Martin because it shares a lot of the same designer with Aston Martin. So when you, you look at the little flick on the back of the spoiler and the headlamps, y- if you look at that side on and look at the Vantage side on, you can see lots of similar elements. And just very, very well proportioned, very pretty, and I think probably an endangered species right now. Very rarely seen. 
Yeah, I mean the racing pumas, like I say, are worth a, worth a chunk. A lot of them were broken earlier on when they they started to get a bit rotten for their engines because the engine is that bit more special than a standard um, Puma 1.7, and the inlets particularly uh, have always been worth a couple of quid. They might be twenty odd grand, but still, the, the normal regular Puma, probably the best of them, are, are fit, fetching you know six or so, and a, a nice one can still be had for, as we found out, two and a half thousand pounds. And that's that seems like a lot of retro car for the money. And if you think about other stuff that's it around is. that period that drives really well, like um, I don't know, a, a Saxo, perhaps, and I'm not just a normal Saxo, a VTS or a VTR, lightweight, relatively simple, and not particularly powerful, but entertaining to drive. All these sort of cars that have, that have disappeared over the years. It's just good, honest, clean driving fun. And you can pace one down a country road, make the most of the engine, rev it out and enjoy it without being in danger really of losing your licence, which is good. Of a similar vintage, I, I saw quite recently, I think just before Christmas parked up, was a, was a Cougar. Uh, and I hadn't seen one of those for a very long time. Mm. A Cougar with a uh, with a C, is this, as opposed to a Cougar yes. with a K? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another SUV. A, a very nice Coupe, I think. If I remember rightly, I drove a V6 one in period, and it was a very nice road car. Mm. Yeah, a bit, of, a bit of a GT. But very few of them are apparently about, or if they are, um, they're hidden away in collections somewhere. Mm. I quite like cars that have that have got rare, but no one's noticed, or, or nobody cares, I think, as Johnny Smith would say. If you've got something like that, then get in touch, tweet us, or find us on the socials. We are at UK Motor Talk any, uh, everywhere. I say anywhere? We're at UK Motor Talk everywhere. So just... just have a look on on Insta, Facebook, or what have you, and uh, or Twitter, and just find us and, and show us what uh, what retro car you've got, or or car that maybe no one no one cares about. The Onion being a, a good example of these kind of cars that disappeared and and no one's really noticed until they randomly pop up. A bit like um, what were those? I don't remember what it's called. Is it the Proton Wira? Was it the oh, W I R A? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, the Wira. The um, I always Weera. remember that from uh, was that. This is a retro PC game, which I'm going to have to go and download now. Uh, was it Network Q Rally 95, yes. something like that? And was it yeah, narrated yeah. by, uh, was it Derek Ringer or Nicky Grist? I forget. I think it was Derek Ringer, wasn't it? So he, he listed out all the cars and bits and pieces. I can't honestly remember, I have to say. but A pretty rare motor, definitely. I saw recently on, on the m 25 uh, I don't suppose anybody will remember this is Citroen Ami 6. And mm. even going in a straight line, it looked dangerously like it was going to fall over. It possibly <laughs> is one of the most unstable, apart from the 2CV, one of the most unstable cars uh, probably ever built. Interesting aerodynamics, which are presumably intended to prevent it falling over, I think, rather than uh, improving its uh, straight line speed, because that's probably somewhere around 35 mph but um I, I certainly wouldn't drive one any faster than that anyway just down the road from us talking of amis we've got a um one of the new ones the electric ones and Ooh. it's um it's hilarious a real life a real a, life one out in the wild a real life electric one and it's got a Ooh, i won't blimey. read out the whole number plate but uh, the last three digits are ufo and i think it would probably have the same effect on most people when they first see one it's <laughs> It's hilarious, honestly. Just seeing it makes me smile every time I see it. And the bloke driving it always looks like he's got a massive grin on his face, probably because he's either insane or he's enjoying <laughs> himself or both. But it, it really, really is brilliant. I mean, you know, I we've all seen them, and I, I got to have a close-up look at the um, at the one just before they um, launched it at Farnborough back at the beginning of 2022. 
and I was quite taken with it then. But when you actually see it on the road, it's it's uh, it's another thing again. Um, I really would quite like a going one. So if anyone from Citroen's listening and wants to let me borrow one for a bit, I would quite happily give you a glowing and stunning report. Just have a go. Not that we're biased <laughs> here, of course, you really. <laughs> not, not at all. Um, I, I did wonder, having looked at some of the cars that are coming out of London, whether, well, I actually felt a bit sad, firstly, because people obviously have to give up their pride and joys. Some people that have had cars for years, and undoubtedly a load of them will just find themselves scrapped because people assume that they're worthless or that no one wants them. But is it a bit like when you see one of those Facebook posts where someone posts up a picture of their car and they've crashed in 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 an owner's group or something similar? And uh, someone goes, oh, hope you're okay. How much for the wheels? Uh, Is it a bit like that? (laughs) People are sort of picking picking over the carcass. I feel a bit like a vulture just circling to to pick (laughs) off these, uh, these big engine monsters. I, I love the idea of a carcass of a car. Um, mm. Yeah, it's I, nice. I like that. I, I, I sort of thought, am I going to find myself in a in a similar sort of position in a few years? We live not far from Brighton, and Brighton, which is ruled and, depending on your opinion, ruined by the Green Party um, in various different aspects, um, isn't. I don't have a ULEZ zone, which I find very bizarre. They reduce the speed limit down to twenty in places, in lots of places. Um, yeah, so generally place. speaking, wherever it's it's thirty, it's twenty. But whereas before I could drive through in fourth gear, I find myself in third or second. So high revs, surely it must be chucking out more CO two. But nevertheless, uh, and then the seafront, which had two um, lanes pretty much the whole way through, one of the lanes uh, is now a cycle path, which seems to be not particularly used. The entire lane is the cycle path. And so the traffic is now very congested and very slow. So I thought what what they should have used half the seafront for, because there's a great big promenade there when just split in half and have a cycle lane there, surely. I think the cycle cycle lane is misplaced. It should have been on the shingle. (laughs) (laughs) For a proper workout. Or or sharing sharing track space with Volks Railway. (laughs) I find myself increasingly frustrated by the fact that the, the the cycle lanes are getting wider and the cycle lanes are being extended. And what I took to be when I first saw the the plans for the um, Lewis to Eastbourne Road uh, as, a, as a widening of the road, hardly any of it's widened, but a lot of it has this massive, hugely expensive cycle lane now. The problem mm. with that cycle lane is all the cyclists that want to go fast well, won't use it. They're still yeah. on the road because yeah. the road is fast and the other one zigzags all over the place. And there have been several million pounds spent on something which is no use to man or beast. But aren't we supposed to have on the uh, on the A259 that's made our commute an absolute misery for the last 798 years? It was one that's mm. supposed to be a big cycle lane area there, or have I missed that entirely? No, it's there. That's, that's the, um, the cycle lane area is on the pavement, um, which is fine. But again, mm-hmm. the cyclists won't use it because they have to stop at junctions or whatever yeah. to cross the road, despite the fact uh, that obviously now they can, they can undertake or overtake or what have you. I, I, I kind of get the whole clean air thing. I do get it. I all jokes aside, it makes sense. Cities can be sort of smoggy, horrible places and just the smell of diesel and all sitting around. Is hot. It's not particularly pleasant. I get that. But I'm just not entirely sure. Um, that that uh, in Brighton particularly they've gone the right way of uh, of sorting that problem out, and I just wondered whether I'm going to find myself sort of stuck 
between cities with cars that you can't drive into the city with. When you said, are there going to be a glut of these and all coming out of London? Yeah, I think I th- it's going to happen. More and more cities are going to go with the new led zone. So, yeah, if you want yeah. to own something like your Mini or uh, lots of older cars, you just won't be allowed them in a city. I mean, it's, uh, it's a bit odd where I think there's a few people in London who've been caught out with it because there's no residence discount anymore. There's no exemption there's no this that the other so they said look i've got an old car that i keep in the garage and i take it out you know once a month to go to the coast and see the mother-in-law in in a you know pip pip spot of motoring on a sunday morning and they drive it straight out london yet because they're one road down from the the zone they have to pay 15 quid to drive it to the end of their road and then it disappears out to london so i think there should be a slightly better you know whether it's a paper mile paper minute or weekends actually are okay it's like you say i get the idea of a a cleaner zone and and to be fair the last time i drove in the middle of london it was absolutely miserable the last time i headed into london and got the tube and everything else it was absolutely fine and got the odd taxi around and actually got there a lot quicker so i think yeah fewer cars in in the middle of a city is fine but driving into brighton i wouldn't drive into brighton as a matter of course, you know, I wouldn't drive there on a Saturday to go shopping. You just get the train. It's just far easier and parking isn't a million pounds a minute. But it's, it's if you live in the city, that that's when I feel sorry for you because the zone has moved into your house. You get plenty of people who'd move just outside the zone because of X, Y and Z. And then the zone the zone expands and now covers their house. And it's like, well, what do you do then? Do you move again? It's, you know, you can't keep moving house just because of a zone, and but you can't pay 15 quid a day because you own an older car. It's it's a bit daft, really. The idea of a ULEZ zone is, is not original to Brighton, to, to London or anywhere else. Paris and Madrid and any other number of European capitals uh, have got ULEZ zones of one size or another. But the one in Paris... I do remember, I can't remember the detail of it, but I do remember there was an exemption for French classic cars, and that was done on the basis that the government at the time realised they didn't want the entire history of French motoring to disappear into a bloody great mangle uh, for the sake of cleaning the air up. So uh, given that uh, these cars are few in number, they come up with the same sort of protection for them. I can't exactly remember the detail. I can remember that the, I think it's the Historical Vehicle Association, was negotiating with London for some sort of exemption for vehicles of a certain age, probably to fit the road tax exemption, that older vehicles with limited mileage, etc., etc., could still comply. 40 years in line with the the road tax exemption. So if you've got a uh, vehicle that's 40 years old, then you can, theoretically, still go into the ULEZ zone but unless we're going to see a, a revival of people drive around in Jensen Interceptors or something perhaps um, I, I suspect it's, it's less likely we're probably still going to see a huge a huge load of cars that are taken off our roads uh, it's mostly I guess the retro bits and pieces that come from the 80s and 90s that will die at this point and presumably some cars that were that I say a diesel or, or even early noughties that are no longer compliant, but probably the kind of cars that people rely on still to move around or are accessible first classics for for younger people. Um, yeah. So cars yeah. which would otherwise normally be uncool, for example, I guess some metros making a, a bit of a resurgence when people find those. I saw a modified Maestro the other day that someone had put a duck tail on and bits and pieces. You think, I can't imagine someone modifying a Maestro, but it... It looked pretty cool, but again, 
it's a, it's a way to be able to get into as a car enthusiast into classic cars or into retro cars because they aren't so ridiculously expensive as say an RS Cosworth or something similar or a 205 GTI see it just uh, it just makes me feel old when you talk about metros and maestros you know those were the like you say the cheapest chips cars that people had at college and you know you'd have a friend who had one then something would blow up on it or he'd write it off or whatever so he'd go out and buy another one for 200 quid the next day or something it's um yeah that uh, that makes me feel old when you talk about that as a classic car such cars are few and far between now makes you feel old yeah it certainly makes me feel old but then uh, there seems to be an increasing number of cars turning up from the the 60s, which I had thought had uh, long gone, so I'm quite pleased to see that the, the sort of, if you like, the slightly more expensive end of the practical classics. So not the cars of the 80s or 70s, but some cars I've been seeing recently from the 60s, which is, uh, it's brought back some memories. The whole sort of ULEZ expansion is still yet in the balance, if you believe what, what you read in certain um live websites if uh, insert the name of your county in front of the word live and you'll get some half-assed reporting online full of lots of adverts about boiling bananas and shoving them up your bum to solve your bowel issues that that's the that's the sort of thing basically it's um local news but it's not really local news and it's all been done by the uh, non-paid intern who's just been given a computer and told just go and write something but anyway there is a story in my local live news about the fact that the ultra low emission zone could backfire their words if a disagreement breaks out between tfl transport London and the Outer London boroughs, or more specifically the Tory Outer London boroughs, who are obviously making this political against Mayor Khan. Uh, Certain numbers of them are saying they will not allow them to install the cameras which would enforce this, which will make for some interesting rat runs if uh, if they do press ahead. And you can loop around uh, Bexley, Croydon, Harrow and Hillingdon if if the Tories get their way against Mayor Khan. Um, They want to put in an extra 2,750 ANPR cameras, and they say we're not a police state, um, in order to make this work. And uh, I imagine if certain boroughs, i.e. the ones I've just mentioned, don't let them do that, then uh, you you may find certain boroughs becoming a rat run for the so-called polluting vehicles. If everybody was driving around in uh, in cars from the 60s and 70s, cars were a lot narrower then. So in theory, couldn't you add an extra lane everywhere? So actually there'd be a lot less congestion you'd effectively turn every road in London into a dual carriageway or motorway. Dave, you're mentioning about uh, the politics controlling the situation. Uh, I well remember being in Madrid a few years ago when they introduced their zone in the centre of Madrid, which was electric vehicles only, and all the emergency services had to have electric vehicles. Only electric buses were allowed in the centre of Madrid, etc., etc., etc. It worked very well for three months until there was a change of the local government, local council, uh, in which case it threw it open again, which saved an awful lot of police resources. And then there was a further change of the regional government and they reintroduced it. So there was an interesting yo-yo effect between people who had no idea whether their vehicle complied or not. Mm. There's been a few uh, random things in foreign countries about if your uh, number plate starts with you know, an even number, you can drive it into town on a Monday, Wednesday or Friday. And if it's an odd number, it's a Tuesday and a Wednesday apart from every other week and it swaps around again. And 
you it, it got very very convoluted but i think it just ended up where people had two cars and just drove into town the same amount of time but just took the other car well in italy apparently there was a nice little uh, piece of villainy with having two number plates and you just simply swap your number plates uh and i know <laughs> it was an easier uh, way of doing it to be fair it, i know it was a, a conversation with a there was a stage where there were too many taxis in barcelona and they were only allowed to work three or uh, on alternate weeks four days and that was all on the the, the number plate so all the taxi drivers just registered the vehicle twice which was uh, quite easy to do and had two number plates so if they really wanted to work on those days they just worked on those days it it didn't solve anything people will always find a way around these things unless you've got it uh, as dave alludes to supervised controlled uh, mismanaged by thousands of cameras yeah mm. we are just it is a police state these days i mean i understand the reason for it and it's a way of doing it but it is pretty scary um in france you have to have a thing called a critère vignette and uh, i only found out about this today because um, my brother is off to france in half term taking the family truckster over there and uh, he's had to apply for one in order to get through certain parts of where he's going i believe there's certain cities and they depend your your sticker will depending on the emissions of your vehicle will allow you into certain parts of the city or none of the city or uh, on certain days or depending on whether it's a thursday or, or something but there's there's quite a quite a list of places and i believe it's growing and I understand the reason behind it but the whole it everything just seems so arbitrary it's like you're saying you know you sort of might you're able to um start the mini run from from in cheam but yet one road down that would have been a, a non-starter you know literally you wouldn't have been allowed to do it and it, it just seems so arbitrary there's no no grown-up thinking there's no look you know we'll there will be certain conditions where it will be fine we'll turn off the things we'll turn it off for the mini run we'll turn it off for the you know the london to brighton that's obviously a different thing altogether but why do, why can't people just sort of agree that on certain occasions this can be permitted but for most of the time, spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. It's because I suppose they don't trust anybody and you've got to be told what to do. I contend that uh, uh, a lot of these decisions are not very democratic because they're often officer-led uh, and the officers will have their own particular bent. Uh, as having had part of my career in local authorities, um, sometimes local authorities will follow whatever other officers recommend and sometimes those officers are mm, not motoring fans and not interested in cars and more interested in two-wheel transport and will happily spend millions on the cycle lanes aforementioned i'm not anti-cycling but i'm anti the way in which some local authorities for political reasons will take certain decisions and spend all of our money I would have enough trouble with bin day, to be honest. I, I find it difficult enough to work out what I should I have to wait for the bin influencers in my road to put their uh, black or blue bin out to know when the bin's going out. If I have to start choosing which day I have, I have to drive which car, it's going to become very confusing. It's just going to end up in owning a lot of cars. Well, there we are. Put your car in the bin and the, the, the local authority will happily dispose of it for you, I'm sure. Well, I suppose you bring the uh, the tone of the podcast down talking of somebody's untimely passing, but Ken Block, who was a, uh, I think, just a, well, the the outpouring of 
emotions from the uh, the motorsport community was touching to see everybody from uh, rally drivers and stunt drivers and skateboarders and Americans and Europeans and Brits and Germans alike you know the just the worldwide outpouring for uh, for Ken Block because he was uh, a hero and a, and a trailblazer in so many ways I mean I think he was there I think to be fair he was probably one of the reasons I started watching YouTube on a regular basis I think he almost took spot YouTube and thought, ah, I can do something really interesting with this because I like being an absolute hooligan, but that probably can't fill half an hour or an hour of a car show. But actually, 10 minutes with a couple of adverts chucked in is is about right. I mean, his Jim Carner videos were just, I, I remember watching them and thinking, what on earth is this? This this is like what I used to do with my radio controlled cars but in real life where where on earth has this bloke come from and and what has he done and how has he done this but it turns out the uh, the shoes i've been wearing for donkey's years dc shoe co he uh, he started that and then flogged it off and then spent all the money going rallying basically and and why not indeed but i think by all accounts he was um he's just been described as as just a genuinely kind friendly wonderful exciting excitable excited kind human being and and just yeah very very sad and i never had the uh the pleasure of meeting him personally but i think uh you did graham on, uh, on more than one occasion didn't you i did on a couple of occasions and the outpourings of commiserations are hardly a surprise I mean, all of the things that you say jim were were true of him i i met him first not knowing much about him but knowing of his um hooligan image and i realized very quickly when i spoke to him that this was an image he was very very careful to portray he created this hooligan image you know he was very much of the youtube generation he knew what it took to get a lot of viewers and he played up to that but when you got to talk to him you realized a he was a very nice guy and he was a very very smart guy at marketing himself and uh, while he might have been of that particular generation, he was also pretty smart at dealing with car companies and people that had lots of money that could uh, help him further his career. And I know he'd just uh, fairly recently, just before his incredibly untimely death, he'd done a very good deal with, with Audi to uh, create a new all-electric, incredibly fast supercar Audi purely for... His continuing use, uh, you know, he's a very, very smart guy. I was very impressed with him. Great, great uh, loss, I, I think, to the whole motorsport community. Well, we're in the garden still. We're talking to Ken Block. Now, Ken is rally driver, race driver, stunt driver, and minicab driver, I gather, if one is to believe the uh, latest TV showing. Uh, yeah, no, I nowadays i'm actually more of a, a rallycross driver than a rally driver and uh i really i've uh, been enjoying that we have a brand new uh race car with a partnership with uh ford performance uh so me and andreas packard are taking on uh you know the fia world rallycross championship it's going a little rough this year because we're developing a new race car but but that testing's going well and it's working out and andreas actually won the last round up in norway but uh, yeah, you mentioned the uh, the taxi thing. Uh, did a great piece with with Top Gear driving my Mustang, what we call the Hoonicorn, around London and uh, 
played it up as if I was a taxi driver for uh, Mr. Matt LeBlanc, and we had a really good time making that piece, and I thought it, they did a really good job. It turned out really good. Well, you've probably been out. You've probably been out of the UK while there was a lot of comment on that. That went down really well. People are saying that's the highlight of the series so far. Yeah, well, that, that's good to hear. You know, there was a bunch of silly press here in the UK when we were making that because someone thought we were trying to do donuts around the cenotaph, in which we were not anywhere near it. And my dad was a, a war veteran, and there's no way I would do anything to, uh, you know, disrespect any sort of war veterans or memorial. So it was kind of disappointing to me that the media made something out of nothing. But that's the media nowadays, but I thought uh, Top Gear did a, did a great job with that piece and I was really proud to, to be a part of that. In terms of the British media, you have the double misfortune of being young and American, which, which makes you a fair target for certain elements of the British newspaper media. Yeah, well, I, I think that they mostly leave me alone because I don't think they know what to make of me. I don't make any political statements or anything. Uh, but yeah, you know, it was really kind of odd being involved with that. I, you know, I think they really targeted more of Matt LeBlanc and Chris Evans for all that stuff. But, you know, at, in, at the end of the day, I, I think the, the news media is just trying to get clicks on the Internet. And that's unfortunate. And, you know, the Top Gear has been a big target. And they know that people are, are real curious to see what happens to the whole series and everything. And I'm kind of out of that entire loop. I was just happy to come over and work with them. They're great group of people to work with and Matt's a, Matt's a friend of mine so it was fun to do that piece with him. You're back here at Goodwood, I know you've been here before, you've always enjoyed it before, you feature large on some of the videos here and you've been having some fun this weekend. Yeah absolutely, we have uh, two cars of mine out here this weekend, uh, the new Ford Focus RS uh, rallycross car is on display over at the Ford booth and then the car that I used to race rallycross with, the Ford Fiesta. Uh, we have here in the Gymkhana setup for it. It's straight actually from doing the Gymkhana video in Dubai last year. We haven't actually done anything with the car since then. So it's in the same trim, graphics and everything from making that video. So I've been driving that up and down the hill uh, for the last three days. So always enjoyable to come here, drive, you know, uh, the race cars around with all this other awesome equipment and be able to interact with drivers from all over, all over the world and all sorts of different racing. So it's really very cool for me to come here and, and be a part of this. Well, we're certainly glad to see you here. Come back each year if you can. Thank you, Ken Block. Thank you for having me on. He brought um, hero status to certain cars. I think there's still plenty of, uh, of young people or probably middle-aged people now that, that drive around in Fiestas and, and particularly the Mark Seven shape because Ken Block had a one of them and, and he did it up and it had big arches and monster graphics all over it and everything. But, you know, there were people who bought a one of them because of him and, and his association with the brand, you know, much like uh, McRae had done for, for myself with Subaru and, you know, mm. Ricard Rydell mm. and Volvo, you know, actually but amongst petrol heads, Volvos are cool to own. And that's probably purely because of the touring cars in the mid nineties, you know, the, the connections long gone and long since disappeared and the games moved on. But I still think of Volvos as cool cars. Why? because a Volvo estate went touring car racing. You know, anything that, that Ken Block's got behind the wheel of is a cool car, purely because yeah. Ken Block. And and it was just his, his inventiveness. But I think almost in a way, he sort of set the the tone and the standard for uh, for other programmes that, that were far more, 
you know, well-established. Top Gear, mm. for example, if you have a look at a Top Gear segment nowadays and you look at what Top Gear was like a year before Ken Block started hooning around, yeah. how close Top Gear videos are now to the original yeah. Ken Block videos with the drone footage and the slow motion and the, the matrix time of panning around the car and slow motion, zooming in this. is he's, he's, it, I don't think it's underestimating it to say he has completely rewritten and reinvented the, the genre of a car video. And and if no, you watch something so. now that's not filmed in that in that way, it, it almost looks very dated, very boring and very sedate. I think there were many people in the car's business who realised very quickly that, that uh, Ken Block could create, in creating his own brand, in his own image, in his own inimitable style, he could lend that to any car company that he so chose. And the, the, a lot of car companies, I mentioned Audi, but there were others, who who followed his lead and, and did things in the way that he did in the slightly, slightly oddball way um, that he would handle the cars, but, uh, but in his very own way. And, and he could create strong brands and did so for others by lending his, his uh, techniques I, I, I mean, there weren't techniques that had been learned uh, other than, than by himself. That was just what you got with Ken Block. Uh, he could do that stuff. Uh, he could create an image for himself. And if you were so minded, he could create a similar image for you, which attached your vehicle, your brand, to that generation. And, and it's rare that anybody can do that. Also has to be said, there are very few people that Lord March will let churn up his uh, priceless green sword outside the front of the house. But having seen Ken Block perform that trick on a number of occasions, uh, he obviously got a pass from his lordship. So if even um, even minor royalty or sort of the, the peerage are, uh, are seeing him as someone they like in their back garden, he can't be a bad bloke. Jensen Bunton got told off for turning up a bit of grass in a, in a Renault Clio V6, didn't he? Whereas uh, with Ken Block, it was actively encouraged. So uh, <laughs> yeah. one, one rule for the Hoonigan and one rule for everyone else, and, uh, and quite right too. <laughs> I'm not sure there has been a European equivalent. Um, he, it, it seems to be an American thing that the European car companies picked up on. Well, just go down to any B and Q car park of a, of a Friday evening when the, the smell of the smell of frying chips and weed is prevalent in the air, and you'll see people attempting to be the European version of Ken Block, but it won't be yeah. quite the same thing. No, indeed not. Indeed. Well, not. again, yeah, I think is he is probably single handedly responsible for uh, for sales of Monster in the UK, but also uh, Monster graphics that go on the side of cars i mean but uh to be fair i think i was exactly the same i was uh digging rummaging about in the uh in the garage and the loft the other day sorting out bits and pieces from when we had our kitchen done and i found my old playstation 2 uh which was exactly of the era and it was i'd i'd stuck some bright orange stickers on it and i think i pretty much wanted it to to look like a chem block car because it had dc shukos uh stickers on it uh oakley sunglasses and monster 
you know, the, the monster slashes all down the side of it. And I, I think the aim was just to make it look like a chem block in Pretza or Fiesta or whatever he was buzzing about in at the time. And and just, you know, his, his influence just, just goes all the way through. But it stuck with the people for a, a long, 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 long time. But I also remember looking at a pair of uh, chem block uh, high top DCs in uh, in a shop, and I think the the missus convinced me not to buy them, and that I was nowhere near cool enough and couldn't possibly pull them off. But uh, shame, I kind of wish I bought them because then I could just stick them in uh, stick them in a cabinet and look at them. But uh, yeah, he'll uh, he'll be fondly missed. He was certainly a one off, but I think just not not afraid to push boundaries or try new things. You know, he'd he'd actually have a go at. Um, you know, proper rallying and world rallying and rally cross and stage rallying, and and, and he never disgraced himself. I mean, I would say out of all the um, uh, all the the motorsport categories, rallying is probably one of the the trickiest to to just get in and pick up in terms of all the knowledge you need and everything else. You know. Car racing, circuit racing, there's, um, you know, is, is always very fine margins that separate the very best. Whereas rallying, you're either sort of okay at it, or you end up in a massive crash and you hit a tree, or you win. There's, you know, rallying is a very extreme, well, you tail around at the back, or you don't finish last, or, you know. But rallying is just uh, another planet in terms of the prep and, and the skills. But he wasn't afraid to get stuck in and, and throw a car at 140 miles an hour a couple of inches away from trees is his precision uh when it came to driving was was just absolutely phenomenal um but there's a, there was always a moment you know if i ever had a narrow escape in a car i remember nipping up to um check on my sister's uh sister's horse which makes me sound far more upper class and rich than i actually am uh but it was check on uh, check on my sister's horse and it was particularly bad weather and up the uh up the the single track lane it was covered in stone i thought well it's a uh, it's a national speed limit road on the run up to it. It's uh, a fairly straight bend, so I'll carry as much speed as I can coming off the corner and just go in a straight line. I'll be okay. Uh, made it about halfway up the hill and just just ran out of momentum. It was just sheet ice. Couldn't get up there in any more. So thought I'd go. I'll roll back down. I'll uh, I'll turn around at the bottom. Uh, headed back down and it, it, it turns out it was the first J turn I ever did in a car but it was uh, by pure accident just half a degree of steering lock and round the car went and I was like oh god here we go I'm gonna have to explain at uh, work how I ripped the front and rear bumpers off this car but executed a perfect J turn and if you know the if the length of a Ford Focus is is I don't know what 3.9 meters long this road could have been no more than 3.901 meters long but I didn't hit a thing didn't hit a thing and the first thing I thought was Ken Block would have been proud of that because it would have been that would have been a real matrix slow motion zoom in miss the side of the uh, of the bushes and the trees by a, a centimeter or two and it was just that yeah. Oh, Ken Block would have been proud of that. You know, we were saying earlier on about there being a European equivalent. I think probably the closest I can think of with a bit of um, having had a bit of time to think about it is probably Russ Swift, whose uh, precision stunt driving isn't quite as, uh, how should we say, showy as the late Mr. Block. But uh, I still still think Russ and his and his son Paul are uh, worthy of a mention in that 
in that thing. Watching him, um, watching him park a car between two other cars with literally just reminding me with the millimeters to spare at either mm. end of the car is still something to behold, even if it isn't quite as uh, matrix bullet time as that done by by Ken. No, the the, the all of the th- the stuff that uh, Russell Swift and and Paul uh, have done uh, is is. It's just very neat and tidy and, and incredibly capable, but it's sort of not spectacular in the same way. But um, uh, Terry, who does the, the Terry stunting Grant. at Terry Grant, that's it, who does the stunting at uh, at Goodwood events and elsewhere, of course, he was doing all his stunting in the collecting area. For anybody who knows Goodwood, it's not a particular big area, but when somebody can literally climb out of a car that he's set spinning climb out and then get into another one and set it spinning <laughs> alongside. And the one that I think amused me most of all was, was where he pulled up very, very briefly. Somebody was videoing him with a, with, a, with a mobile phone and he pulled up and he took the mobile phone off the young lady that was holding it and then carried on stunting with his arm out the window filming himself. Uh, and the stuff that he does, I mean, when he gets out of the car and climbs on the bloody roof, he, I mean, he climbs out the window and is on the roof of a car that he sets spinning. He has this some sort of wheel locking system that he can lock on each of the wheels independently. So the thing just spins uh, exactly where he set it. The level of attention to detail to perform that sort of stunt is it, really, really spectacular. And when he can get his mechanic to sort of stand in the middle of his spinning vehicles, uh, completely undeterred by the, the madness that's going on around him, yeah, I've got a lot of time for that guy. He amuses me greatly, which is why, in some way, uh, he is a little like Ken Block, in that uh, he's persuaded Jaguar Land Rover to start lending him vehicles. So when you see him doing stunts like that in an XF Jaguar, that's quite something to behold that they can lend you a, or a, a, any of the brand-new Jaguars, and he will do those sorts of stunts with them. Quite amazing. They're a breed apart, aren't they, these people? We can only yeah, dream. But he will he will be Miss Ken Block. He's influenced a lot so. of people and brought a lot of pleasure, and we've still got the videos. We can still enjoy them, but uh, obviously slightly, slightly bittersweet. To move on from that slightly sad note, um, it is the beginning of a new year. We've got a lot to look forward to, and I'm sure Ken would want us to carry on in that vein. So I personally have got a few new car launches I'm looking forward to. We'll probably talk about those in a in a later edition. I think there's some track days coming up too, and there's the, obviously lots of car events, car shows. There's always the Festival of Speed and the Revival that you know us for, but plenty of others. So something to be looking forward to in 2023, and we shall keep you in the loop of everything that's going on. And of course, if you're missing us in the meantime, don't forget to find us on the socials. We are at UK Motor Talk pretty much everywhere. So on that note, I think it's probably time for us to end. So from me, Dave, a very good evening, good morning, good night, whenever it is that you're listening. I've been Mike. Goodbye. And from me, Jim, it's goodbye as well. Take care. And from me, Graham, drive safe. Take care. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.